Welcome to One Step, a podcast about the small steps to healing and big transformation. We'll be exploring the arc of change through life's deepest questions and most challenging moments while also celebrating the small victories and having some fun. Because change doesn't happen overnight, it happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and I've spent the last 10 years carrying false assumptions about alcoholism and addiction, and now that's changed. As I've met more people over the years who are in recovery, they've shattered and challenged my preconceived notions. I'm a better person because of it. Today, I'm talking to Erica Anderson, who currently serves as executive producer for Kara Swisher at Vox Media. She runs Recode Decode and Pivot Podcasts, two of the most influential technology podcasts in the country. Previously, she worked at Google, where she was one of the core organizers of the Google Walkout, as well as Twitter, MTV News, and CBS News. She is also in recovery and just happens to be my girlfriend, too. I have some butterflies in my stomach today, I think, because one, I love you, and we haven't done anything like this before. No. How are you feeling? I'm a little nervous, too, to be honest. Okay, good. We're in the same boat. Yeah. Well, something tells me that we'll get through this together, and it'll be really great. All right, good. I knew that I wanted you to be a guest on the podcast, and... When I asked you what you would like to talk about, because I really just Mm. left it open for you, um, why did you choose the topic of sobriety and recovery? Yeah. Well, first of all, Ingrid, I mean, I've been listening to your podcast and all the guests are bringing their A game, (laughs) and especially Nitika Chopra. I love that episode. I've loved all of them. But um, when I thought about you know, the prompt, um, what's been the single greatest transformation or what is it I can talk about um, that's played such a pivotal role in my life and there really is nothing as important as my journey to sobriety and and in recovery. So, so much has happened. Like I look back, I considered other topics like um, losing my mom when I was 21 or uh, coming out when I was 22. But honestly, like the most grounding thing in my life and the most important thing in my life is is my sobriety. And it's not something I talk about at all um, on, you know, a more than an interpersonal level. I talk about it a lot with friends and family, but um, certainly not in other forums. So I felt like it was time to, to talk about it and share that journey. Why did now feel like the time? Well, <laughs> because you asked. <laughs> the name of the podcast. Um, it's... Well, you're um, also in a safe space yeah, here, too. Yeah, totally, because it's you. Sometimes it's just, you know, timing feels right, and mm-hmm. I think it's important not to force these things, but this felt right, so here we are. So what is your experience with sobriety? What are you in recovery from? I quit drinking alcohol in March of 2012, so it's been seven and a half years uh, without a drink or a drug, mind-altering substance. So... My journey, I would say, I got sober when I was 27, living in San Francisco. At the time, I was working at Twitter. And I think growing up, I kind of had a realization that I had a different response to alcohol than the people around me, I think both mentally and physically. I, you know, craved it. One drink was really never enough. I was really interested in, like, procuring it. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, hiding it and even though my life looked really good on the outside like I you know in high school played three varsity sports and was in a student council and kind of all that stuff you know I I had all this external stuff went to college 
graduated, um, was really involved, studied abroad, and then had a series of really interesting jobs out of college. But deep down, I was coping with kind of the stress in my life through drinking and drinking to the effect of, you know, doing things that I felt were dangerous and scary. And it was very, it was very personal. And it was, uh, became really, really scary. And so I just kind of had all these clues and realized when I was 27, living in San Francisco, that I really had come to a crossroads and that I had to change my life. Do you remember the first moment when you realized, oh, alcohol is going to be an issue for me? Uh, yeah, I think I was like 13. Oh you know, I was yeah, I was sitting around at a at a dinner table with my family and my extended family, and you know, drinking was a big part of my family culture. I'm I don't you know. I don't think other people in my immediate family have the same kind of relationship with alcohol that I do, but it's a big part of the culture and having a glass of wine and um, having cocktails. And so, you know, I just always kind of knew, like deep down, that um, I was kind of jonesing for it in a way. And whether it was to like celebrate something or to be sneaky or to like kind of numb a pain, I just always knew deep down. So I, I had that feeling pop up when I was 12 or 13 and um, really scary, like locked it away, put it away and, you know, continued on until I had to confront it. Why did you have to confront it? Well, you know, God, I'm so lucky that I confronted it. I think I'll just start there. I mean, I was just to like take you to that moment. I mean, I was living in San Francisco. I had moved out there for a job. I was working at Twitter. It was such an exciting time at the company. I joined when we were like 300 employees. We all felt like we were touching the sun. Like every day something extraordinary was happening. I was in this role overseeing all of our relationships with journalists and news organizations around the world on a tiny team doing stuff that like really impacted culture. And it was such an intense high. And yet um, I... I think in that moment of like of of high stakes, I was realizing that I didn't have the tools, the personal tools, to really deal with the stress and the pressure and the intensity. And so my drinking picked up. I was, um, you know, making it into work. But um, I would say that like for me, like kind of the seams were beginning to to come, kind of break apart. And and I just and I was like at a show in San Francisco, listening to this like soulful British singer one night, Emily Sandy, and it was really it was a really small venue. And I just like had this beer in my hand, and I put it down, and just inside, like, kind of just heard the word enough, like this is enough. And that night, I like went home and um, woke up the next morning and sat on the edge of my bed and was like really had this moment of total concession. I conceded to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic and I have a problem. And it didn't matter. Like, my life didn't look like what I thought an alcoholic should look like. Like, I thought an alcoholic was someone who had lost it all. I was very classist about it. I thought that it was only, you know, poor people, which is terrible to say. But, like, I just had all these, like, very judgmental ideas about what alcoholism was. And honestly, it was staring me in the face. Um, I had it and I have it. And it is a lifelong journey. I think one of the things that intimidated me most was imagining never drinking again, which feels, especially at that time, felt quite terrifying. But um, yeah, I sat in that like sunny corner apartment in San Francisco and really like the earth kind of, it just felt like everything shifted around me. And I had a new orientation, a new understanding of myself with such clarity. And from that day forward, I, I got sober. And it's 
I haven't had a drink, and it's not everyone's story, but that's that's how it worked for me. Why do you think so many of us have these ideas around like what an addict looks like, what an alcoholic looks like? Because I know I definitely carried a lot of those assumptions and preconceived notions inside of me. And then when we met, and you know, the first time that we ever spent time together, um, you told me that you're sober. Mm -hmm. And that was like, just shattered my world in a really good way. It made me realize how ignorant I had been. Um, And I was immediately accepting of it. I remember also being curious because I didn't know Mm -hmm. very much about sobriety and recovery, but it just like shattered this idea that I had had in my head, which was very similar to yours and was really ignorant to think that, you know, um, only these people over here um, deal with something like this. Why do you think so many people hold that inside of themselves? Well, I think there's still a huge stigma about alcoholism. And I mean, there's so much that I'm not even like, capable of reflecting on because there's been so much research on this topic and you know cultural research as to why this is I think um, for me I know that like I had a huge stigma you know I thought what someone can't control themselves you know I always made it like a moral thing like a moral judgment of someone's character they were unable to control themselves and so therefore you know thinking that of other people I thought that of myself and so I fought so hard to just work a little bit harder have a little bit more control set up different rules around my drinking when you know, in reality, like I couldn't keep to that. And so I I just will kind of like ground myself and say what really helped me when I first got into recovery was learning the definition of alcoholism as defined by the American Medical Association, which um, if I can just read it now. So alcoholism um, is defined as a primary chronic disease with genetic, psychosocial, and environmental factors that influence its its development and manifestations. So, So number one, it's a disease. And then it's often progressive and fatal. So number two, it's deadly. And it's characterized by impaired control over drinking, preoccupation with alcohol, use of alcohol despite adverse consequences, and distortions in thinking, most notably denial. So they say each of these symptoms can be continuous or periodic. And, you know, for me, like, I definitely um, had adverse consequences. Um, I definitely had denial. And I definitely just wanted it to, like, not be an issue. So, yeah, that's denial, right? Like, I was just like, oh, this isn't that bad. This isn't that bad. I guess what I'm so grateful for, and I think, you know, I got sober seven years after my mom died. And so you know, I kind of had these, like, this perfect storm of conditions, at least the way I think of it, as to, like, how my alcoholism, like, really ramped up. I, my mom got sick when I was younger, and, like, by the way, this isn't the reason I'm an alcoholic, but it was, like, conditions in my life that, like, escalated it. So my mom got really sick. Um, I would definitely say, like, my childhood kind of ended at that moment when I was, like, 16 or 17, and then she died, and I was horrifically depressed you know so sad and didn't know how to cope with it and so I started drinking and I remember recognizing when I was sitting on the edge of my bed at age 27 in San Francisco like this isn't what my mom wants for me like my mom wants me more than anything especially through her illness she wanted me to be happy and healthy and fundamentally I wasn't happy and I wasn't healthy and so you know 
I'm so grateful that I had this realization when I was younger and I didn't have to go through another five or 10 or 20 years of um, fighting tooth and nail, something that I really can't beat. What is something that, you know, being in the place where you are now, seven and a half years Mm -hmm. sober and looking back on that person who wasn't sober, maybe about to get sober, what are the differences in your health that you've noticed? Mm. Well, I um, I don't suffer from anxiety in the same way. I found new ways to manage my anxiety. Surprise, it's like getting eight hours of sleep, exercising, eating well. It's really the basics. Um, I am physically healthier. I've gained weight in sobriety, and that is something that is in- – I didn't expect that. I thought when I quit drinking, I would lose weight. I thought that alcohol had put weight on me, but um, the reality was is that I wasn't – I didn't have, like, a healthy, nutritious intake of food because of alcohol. So my body has changed. I would like to think that my body has gotten back to normal, like what it's supposed to be. But yeah, I think just, you know, really like my mental health is is really solid. Like I still, I maintain it and I do lots of things, you know, therapy and talking to other people um, who struggle with alcoholism, but I'm just, it's it's totally different. I'm, I'm a completely, I'm not a completely different person. I feel like I'm the person I was meant to be before I started drinking. What was the hardest step for you in getting sober? I think one of the hardest steps was reintegrating into, I would say, like society as a sober person. So before I got sober, so much of my social activity, pretty much 100% of it included, involved alcohol. And that's not to say that today I don't, you know, today I am around alcohol. I go to events where there's alcohol and I have a very neutral perspective and point of view on it. I don't get, you know, nervous like I did in early sobriety. So one of the hardest thing was reintegration. So learning how to, um, learning how to, learning what my relationship with alcohol was, learning how to have a healthy relationship, learning that when I have that first immediate thought, which is, oh my God, I'm really nervous. I want to drink. Letting that thought, like sitting with that thought. And then the next thought is, no, you don't. It's it's okay. No, you don't. You're okay. You're just nervous. I remember that happened at a gala I went to in San Francisco when I was about a year sober and champagne was being passed around and I was like, oh my God, I want to drink. And so learning how to like let the first thought, that that first reaction come and then letting the second one come. And the second one is always, you don't actually want that. That's not good. What is it like navigating life events? Because I think a lot of us associate maybe like reaching outside of ourselves for something when we're going through a difficult time. But what about the times in life that are just a really big deal in a positive way, like a celebratory Mm -hmm. experience? What's it like navigating those moments? Mm -hmm. You know, I've had a lot of those. I mean, I'm actually, my my immediate thought, I just went back to like being a kid and like having a pinata and a birthday cake. Like there's like a lot of joy that can occur without, you know, needing alcohol to celebrate. Though I've definitely, I've been at weddings. You know, my, my brother got married. My cousin Shay got married. I was sober at those events. My cousin Chaz got married. And participating in, in the areas of the events that I like. You know, I, I love talking to people. I tend to like leave events when people start to get kind of sloppy. Like that to me is a cue to, to go. So I don't, I don't stick around. So I've learned my boundaries of what I want to do. But, you know, I celebrate in new ways. Like I celebrate with, with self-care. I remember I was in this photo shoot a few years ago um, for Lesbians Who Tech, this organization I'm involved with. And I was in Vogue. Um, it's before I met you. And I remember like I was at this shoot and it was like a four hour shoot, which, you know, Ingrid, I'm not you. I'm, this was like a new thing for me. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And 
it was such a high, like, being shot by a Vogue photographer. I, I mean, I just, like, went through the motions. And then afterwards, I, like, felt like I was coming down from something. And I remember, like, being like, oh, my God, I just have to go to a meeting. Um, and so that was a moment where, like, I felt like I needed to be around other people who have what I have and find that support because it's, it's just so important for me. And that's such a weird thing, like, to think about how I had this extraordinary situation. But the reason is, is because typically before I stopped drinking, I would have wanted to have a glass of champagne. I would have gone out to the bar. Like, I would have been like, oh, my God, I was just, you know, photographed by Vogue. And instead, I needed to, like, stay really grounded and, like, go take 60 minutes to be around other people who are trying to do this and um, to hear their stories and to just kind of be back grounded in that. And then to go home and, like, call my dad and tell him about how cool the Vogue thing was. What's it like dating someone who's not sober? It's great. I think I've done both. I mean, listen, like, the most important thing to me is that the person I'm dating has a healthy relationship with alcohol, you know, whether they drink or don't drink. I think I was telling you before, like, sobriety is the number one priority in my life. Like, it just is. I I have to kind of put that first. And there's this, like, old saying that, like, whatever you put before sobriety, you lose. Like, it's, it's one of these old kind of like warnings um and I think I've heard that from like mentors who have long-term sobriety and it's been my experience I don't really want to like fuck with that you know it's like I do have to like take different steps to like maintain honesty and a spiritual um grounding in my life and um really be like a present in my own life and you know to kind of continue to build this this recovery that I have so it's you know, for like you, I remember the first time, our second date, I think our first date was kind of at Lesbians Who Tech. We met on like a Friday and then I, we had coffee and then I flew home for the weekend. And I, I still have the coffee cup, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty special coffee. Um, but then I came back Sunday night and like you asked me to get together. And both of us, like, let's be honest, none of us were, like, going out at 11 p.m. on no. a Sunday night. No, yeah. Eileen was with me because we were staying in this same hotel room because I didn't live in New York yet. And she was like, when was the last time that you were leaving to go out at 11 p.m.? And I was like, honestly, I don't even remember. Must have been, like, years and years ago because I would not just do this for yeah. anyone. Yeah. But you were coming back from... Yeah, I, I, I landed um, at, like, JFK, and then I went home, dropped off my bags, and went and met you at this, like, cool little bar in my neighborhood that I had never been to, but I just knew it would be, like, a good little spot to meet up with you at. And that was kind of out of character, too. Like, I don't, you know, really hang out in bars. Just personally not something I enjoy anymore. But we sat down, and, like, I got a mocktail, and you got a drink, and I just... I don't know. What I what I immediately noticed about you was that it wasn't alcohol wasn't a central focus for you, you know, and I've been in other situations where it has been for the other person. So that was just really nice. Like it's not it's not a primary focus. So that's made it that's made it super easy. Yeah, and I feel like we're very much on the same page with when we want to leave events yeah. too. And <laughs> let's be honest, yeah. we leave before it even gets like Floppy, into, yeah, totally. into like the drunk haze. We're like, okay, we're ready for bed now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, all right, we've talked to everyone and see ya. Yeah. But I love that. Yeah. I love having someone who's like on the same page yeah. with me, especially yeah. for things like that. Totally. I also love this really practice of putting your sobriety first because I think that even if you're not sober 
the act of putting caring for yourself, not just like in a physical way, but in a higher and spiritual mm. way mm-hmm. is so important. And I think that often, especially as women, we're seen as being selfish if we put our well-being before someone else's. Mm. I think to say that caring for myself comes first, mm-hmm. no matter what, and no matter how that looks for you is really powerful and is a really big deal, especially as a woman when we're, you know, often seen as these caretakers that are supposed to be taking care of other people. Well, it's been really hard to do. And, and I, I was a caretaker for my mom, as, as was my dad and, and my siblings when she was sick. So I, I think like anyone, oftentimes, like we get to a point in our life where we have to start unlearning things that like, just weren't our fault like we were just conditioned to believe something or we had a life situation that occurred where like you know I was gonna step up and like help my family or my dad was gonna do the same thing or my sister but at some point I had to realize like that kind of stuff wasn't working for me anymore and it's still a journey it's still hard to like you know not be codependent and to put myself first but having awareness is a great first step what's a step you didn't see coming in your recovery definitely the spirituality and the service, like helping other people. So I think when I first got sober, all I could think about was like just not taking a drink that day. Like it was just that intense and it was really hard. Then as time evolved, as as time went on and I I got a mentor who like kind of showed me what she had done to stay sober, I started to learn that so much about what I was doing was like avoiding a connection to anything. um, And that the way to the opposite of that is to have a connection is to have a connection to other people and to for me finding like a higher power you know I was I was raised Catholic and I remember looking around church when I was younger and kind of being jealous of like people who were into it (laughs) I was like I was sitting there like really uncomfortable you know especially as a closeted queer yeah exactly like in Indiana I didn't know that I was gay but I knew I was different and But just, yeah, feeling kind of jealous that these people felt connected and really felt alone. And so I think religion didn't appeal to me, though I think it works for a lot of people, and I totally respect that. But spirituality did work for me. And that is, for me, a much more personal relationship with a higher power of my own understanding. You know, I... I, you know, I started praying in early recovery and like my prayers are basically like, hey, God, what's up? Like, it's like I'm talking to a friend. Um, It's not rigid. It's like, hey, can you at first was like, hey, can you help me today to like not take a drink? And then it became, hey, can you help me give me the right intuitive thought on how to handle the situation? And um, it's weird how it kind of works, you know, and like. I it just I started to like amassing proof that it worked and that it helped me to have a relationship with something bigger than myself. And getting sober in Northern California, I had this extraordinary experience that I guess I would call like a God moment or something in early sobriety, which was a friend of mine took me surfing and she, Minnie, was like, I'm going to teach you to surf. And she also was kind of doing the same thing I was doing. And um, she took me out to Pacifica and we got in this in wetsuits and we got in the ocean and I'd always been so terrified of the ocean and um we were surfing I learned how to surf and I just had this like literal wave of joy like wash over me and I had this like I I, like let out this belly laugh that like I don't think I had had a real belly laugh probably in like 10 years and Mm -hmm. 
in that moment, I just was like, wow, this is joy. This is lightness. This is love. Like, this is what I want my life to be. It doesn't have to be so dark. And so that's, that's what I'm going for. You know, it's like, I just, it always, it's always gonna be hard steps in life, but I want that joy. And, and I believe I deserve that joy. And it's, but it's, it's a daily practice of like honing my relationship, building my relationship with something bigger than myself. And now you belly laugh a lot with me. A lot. We <laughs> laugh a lot. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I make Erica laugh at the most unexpected moments, yeah, but I will funny. take it. Yeah. I will take that. What's it like being queer and sober? Because the LGBTQ community does have substantially higher rates of addiction and alcohol Mm -hmm. and drug abuse um, Mm -hmm. in comparison to heterosexual people Mm -hmm. or just other groups of people. Yeah. I mean, listen, like when I, part of my story, like when I came out, I moved to Washington, D.C. out of college and I looked for queer people in bars and I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that is, is actually like a very well documented way that like we convene especially when it was dangerous and illegal. I mean, it still is in different parts of the world, but so I started going to bars and I, and that was a big part of my identity. I thought in order to be queer, I have to drink. And you know, what I learned in sobriety was, oh my God, there are so many people and there are so many queer people who don't drink and maybe don't drink, but then they're also sober. And so I think for me, like I've worked hard to like find community within the LGBTQAI community, people who don't drink. Um, I remember, again, when I was living in SF, like for Pride one year, every year they put up a huge pink triangle, um, which is a symbol of, it was the symbol that was used in the Holocaust. Um, It was a pink triangle was put on um, gay and lesbian. So it's something that our community has kind of taken back. And for Pride in San Francisco, they put a massive pink triangle tarp on the side of a hill overlooking the Castro. And so one year I got up early and I volunteered and I went up at like 6 a.m. Um, with like the fog rolling in and like put up that tarp. And I met all these people who were mm-hmm. clearly not hung over from the night before. You know, it was their priority to go to bed early and go do that. And so I have just found ways to connect with queer, the queer community and our queer history in a way that doesn't involve drinking. And it's been way easier than I, than I thought. Yeah. And I think even for me, you know, I am not sober, but I also crave meeting queer people in other ways. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the history behind why queer people have convened in bars. And it's like you said, you know, there were times where, and in some places in the world and even in this country, where it still is dangerous to be gathering. Um, And a lot of these bars have been around for a really long time. And so there's like generational history there. Um, And they are, you know, I remember when I first came out, they were a fun place to visit, but I quickly realized that, oh, I'm not going to be able to meet the people that Mm -hmm. I want to meet here just for the sole fact that I can't have a conversation Mm -hmm. because it's so loud. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was my main thing. I just, I want to be in a more quiet Mm -hmm. environment where I can meet people and actually talk to them. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I made that video earlier this year about you know, places in New York City where you can, like, experience queer things and meet queer people, and it's not related to a bar 
or a club because that was such a personal experience for me of just wanting to meet other people and thinking at first well surely this is this is the way this when you google it those are the only things that really pop up at least you know on the first page of Google, so you don't really think. Yeah. Okay, come I'm on. Rolling my eyes. We we all you can't know. trust the first page of Google. I know. You gotta scroll. I, <laughs> I know, but also so many people do it. We've all I know, Googled, totally. especially as queer people, yeah. like how to find other yeah. queer people. And when the search results are yeah. so limited, yeah. it makes you feel like your experience has totally. to be limited. Totally, I agree. I agree. And I, I think it's really normal to look for, to think that that's your only option as an LGBT person. But your video was great because you talked about other ways. Like I remember the bookstore, Blue Stockings, and there's just, there is just so many ways to meet people. So um, yeah, that was a revelation to me. What's a step in recovery that no one really talks about hmm. that you've experienced? Well, I will say one step a lot of people talk about, because I think a lot of people can be afraid of, is making amends. And that's, so that's one that I think gets a lot of attention, which is this principle of like righting your wrongs and trying to do it quickly if you can, um, which I've done. And that's, that's been really challenging, but important. Um, I think in terms of not something that people don't talk about, I mean, that's hard, because I think there's a lot people don't talk about when it comes to recovery. What do you wish was just within, you know, the broader knowledge of our culture? About recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, just how much we help each other. Like, there's just so much um, giving back to one another when you find out someone is struggling. It's pretty extraordinary. Like, I've had some of my most meaningful relationships helping other people learn um, what I've, what's been handed down to me about how to not drink. Um, and those are really like special and intimate relationships. So it's not something that I think gets talked about a lot, but it's transformative. Like when I learned how to kind of humbly help someone else do this, like it transformed all of my relationships. Um, and so that's, that's pretty powerful. I'm trying to think what else. How can people who aren't sober be supportive of people who are sober? You know, it's a very personal thing, so asking your friend about it, telling them you support them, um, uh, asking them if they need help, um, just yeah, just being supportive, right? Like, maybe not planning a birthday party at a bar, <laughs> you know, you totally, you're entitled to, but, like, maybe doing it at a bowling alley instead. Like, um, just thinking about the fact that, like, not everyone's going to want to drink, and that could be for so many reasons, but when you're a recovering alcoholic, it can be especially difficult to be in those environments. But I think just like letting your friends know that like you're there for them, you don't judge them. Yeah, just telling them you love them. And like, it's, it sucks if they're in pain. Because I think ultimately, like, that's what it's about is like feeling very like lonely and um, sick and suffering. And I remember like in sobriety, like really treating myself like I was ill at the time, like getting sober, like, I was sick and I really had to let myself heal and take time to move slow. And I think for those kinds of like diseases where you can't see it physically on your skin, um, you know, or in manifestations like that, it can, it for me was even more difficult to be kind to myself and to take it easy. I feel like I've definitely noticed as I've formed more of an awareness around how prevalent drinking is just in our culture, I've always 
been aware of that, but I think now I have this like acute awareness of how alcohol is everywhere pretty much all the time. What I have noticed is that in a lot more spaces, um, they are much more open about offering non-alcoholic mm. options. And I remember being at an event and waiting in line and to every single person, they said, like, here's our cocktail and here's our, like, mocktail mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. version. And I thought that was something that was so cool that they were just mm-hmm. tuned in mm-hmm. and were immediately offering both options to every single mm-hmm. person. They weren't making assumptions. They were just putting the options mm-hmm. out there, which I think is a huge yeah. shift just when I think from, like, 10 years ago, I don't remember seeing anything like this at all. I think there's a lot more awareness, a lot more people talking about not drinking. I remember being at like a work event where they didn't have alternative options and that was like, you just, it's like a punch in the gut. You just feel like, oh God. Well, you're not like being It feels like you're not welcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can't be part of this club because you don't do this thing that's central to our club. Right, right. That's the other thing is I thought in order to be successful in work, I had to drink with like the guys um, because I did for a long time. And I've like learned that's just not true. You know, one of the hardest steps was like, I think removing myself from that, like removing myself from like the happy hours to like basically talk to colleagues about what was going on at work and to try and like figure out solutions. And it's been surprising, like, even in the absence of doing that, like, I still have been, like, really effective and really good at my job. And so what I've learned is, like, a lot of that just, I don't know, wasn't necessary, but I thought it was. I was Mm. obsessed with it. Uh, Back to the boys' club. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a girls' club, too, that drinks hard. But it's, it's just these ideas of the way I thought I had to do things. Was there a step that you felt particularly a lot of shame around in your recovery or still feel a lot of shame around because this is constant work Mm -hmm. well yeah like the amends stuff like I have an amends I'm working on right now it's like many months in the making like I had an interpersonal issue with a friend and I really love this person but I you know eventually have to get to a point where I own up to what I did and I mean it wasn't like ruthless or brutal like my sins I guess are not as like horrific as I used to think they were but it is something that eventually I have to like I would like the chance to own up to it and it's been a lot of work to get there working with my mentor um kind of going over like what happened why did I do this and so that's the surprising thing it's like yeah you get sober and then you end up realizing that like your thoughts and your actions and the way you respond to the world, the way I respond to the world, um, is it's all intertwined with my alcoholism. And in the absence of the alcohol, you know, there's just a lot of stuff you have to like work on. So yeah, I've had a lot of shame of like, you know, needing to like make amends. But the truth is, is like, God, it's an amazing feeling to be able to like have as they say like you know clean my side of the street like to know that I might have messed up or said something wrong or hurt someone's feelings but you know I am pretty good at owning up to it um and acknowledging my part and like it's just it's a really freeing feeling there's total freedom in that well I might be a little biased but I think you're really good at taking responsibility for what your part in situations are just thinking about like the conflicts that we've been in and you're I think that is definitely one of your strengths thank you 
And it's something that I really admire about you. I think seeing you just practice that regularly in your life, like taking responsibility for what you are truly responsible for has made me look deeper Mm -hmm. into the things that like I have played a role in because in every situation we do play a role to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think finding that role ultimately is really healing for us because it allows us to move forward. Yeah, definitely. So is recovery something that is like a forever thing for you? Mm. Well, I like to think of it as one day at a time. I hope that I am in recovery when I'm an old woman, but for now it's just like today. Like today Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have a drink. I'm going to do the best I can. And I just love that. I think, you know, I know you were raised Buddhist and, and I will say that well, like partially, partially Buddhist. yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> there's a lot of um, things that I've taken from the Buddhist um, religion and culture. And, and, you know, one of those is just being present in the mm-hmm. moment. And, you know, the more I live in the future and, and think about like what it's going to be like a year from now, or the more I live in the past, like the less happy I am. And so for me, even in, especially in this, like I just try and think about today. And today, I think it's gonna be a good day. We're going on a date tonight. I yeah. don't think there's gonna be any alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it'll be a good day. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. We, uh, spoiler alert, are going to a cemetery and then a <laughs> diner. So we love history. Yeah, that is a sneak peek into <laughs> our relationship. <laughs> but I love that. You know, I think one of the things that really stood out to me when I met you is how present you are Mm, and same about you thank you my gosh yeah um and you know i think that today really is the thing that we have for sure Mm -hmm. what's right in front of us Mm -hmm. so with that idea in our heads what is your next step literally today Mm. well i am i hope i'm gonna do yoga today i've got that on my calendar just like take care of my body after a really long week. Um, I'm probably going to call one of my mentors after this and let them know how it went um, and just kind of like get out of my head about it because I'm sure I'll be like, what did I say? <laughs> but yeah, and I think that's going to be my next step today. Keep it simple. So something that I like to do on the podcast is small victories mm. at the end. I love to hear about the small mm. moments that were a big deal to someone in their last week. So what's one small victory that you mm. can share with us? Well, I had a really hard meeting this week at work, and I was able to own up to my part. But I was also able to hold two truths at once. So I think one of the more like important things I've learned in recovery is like two things can exist in one time, right? Like you can be wrong, but you can also be right for holding your ground. And so... I did that in a really difficult situation, and um, I'm really proud of myself. It was really hard. You know all about it, Um, but I guess that was my victory for the week. And then today, I got myself an almond croissant. I had a bite. It was delicious. (laughs) Loved it. I appreciate appreciate that Mm -hmm. little gift that you brought in. But I think it's a big deal to, you know, have that moment of recognition where you realize that two opposing truths can exist at the same time and at first it seems really hard and you're like how is that even possible how do I even navigate this but I think the more that I've experienced that in my life it's actually 
become really comforting mm-hmm. to me. Like these two things can exist and mm-hmm. that is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I tend to think really black and white, mm-hmm. like, oh, I was totally wrong or, oh, I, d-, you know, and the reality is, is like, it's just life. There are more gradients of gray and I have always felt really uncomfortable in the gray, but I'm learning to be more comfortable in the gray, which I think is really important for me and really healthy. Well, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Ingrid. And exploring a lot of gray area. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Congratulations again on this podcast. It's amazing. Thanks. So good to see you being so creative. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm taking a breath after that interview. Erica just left and I feel like it's a lot to take in and I'm on this just like giddy high. Maybe it's because I love her too and she's my girlfriend. So I just feel just really warm on the inside right now. Thank you so much to everyone out there who is listening right now. On next week's episode, I'm going to be reflecting on this first season of One Step. We are at the end of the first season, which is so crazy. It went by so fast. And... Because I'm gonna be reflecting on the first season, I want your feedback too. So tell me what you thought of this whole first season. Is there something that stuck out to you? Is there something that you wanna hear in season two? Let us know. There's a couple ways that you can get in touch with us. You can leave a voicemail at 551-333-9021 or send a voice note to onesteppodcast at gmail.com. And let me know what you thought of the episode. Was there anything that surprised you? And of course, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast to stay up to date. We're doing a lot of cool stuff over on the Instagram. And even after the podcast season ends, we'll continue updating the Instagram account there. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our producer, Christina Cleveland, our sound engineer, Tung Chen, who works some miracles today at our different studio today, The Wing in Dumbo. Take care and talk soon.